Hey, Dark Word fans. Got a very special episode of the podcast today. As always, this is your host, Philip Farkasi. And this week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Thomas Olda Hovelt live from the last bookstore here in Los Angeles. We discussed his early publishing career, the runaway success of Hex, his current and upcoming work, writing advice, and lots more. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Let me take a step back and do an introduction for myself, too, because we're recording this for my podcast, which is called The Dark Word. So we'll open it up by saying, welcome to The Dark Word. My guest today is Thomas Oldehovelt. Thomas is an international best-selling author who broke through with the novel Hex. Since then, his work has been sold in more than 25 countries. The critically acclaimed Echo was recently published in the U.S., and rights for his new novel, Oracle, have also been sold worldwide. In 2015, he was the first Dutch author to win a Hugo Award. Thomas, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, so let's start with, because the podcast is about writing, and one of the first things I always like to talk about with my guests who are on the podcast is how you got your start. And I'm going to preface it by saying I know that you, you kind of had a head start in Holland and your original Dutch language and then so talk a little bit about that and then how you kind of slowly uh, became more of an international voice all right yeah I, I mean way before I was published in the Netherlands I started writing I was I think was nine years old um, you know I, I had storytellers in my life um, I think the best thing you can give a child is a storyteller my uncle was a storyteller he told me stories before bedtime and he told me the kind of good stuff. You know, I live in the eastern part of the Netherlands. He lived in Amsterdam, and my father had died really young, so we spent a lot of weekends at my uncle's to, you know, relieve my mother a little bit. Um, and he would sit on the edge of the bed and tell me stories. And he would tell me stories like Bram Stoker's Dracula when I was eight or Roald Dahl's The Witches when I was seven. And because I had experienced death in my life... Um, as a child, I envisioned death as something that lived on our attic and that could, you know, come down if I made too much noise on the stairs sure, and would sure. grab me or my sister as well. And the only way I discovered to, you know, make sense of these feelings and was by telling my own stories. And my uncle had taught me that they had to be scary, and so I made them scary, and I've been doing that all my life. Yeah, so now when you say your uncle told you these stories, was he, did he actually read from the, the books or was he just like, was like he an oral was, tradition? No, he, it was an oral tradition. He, he, he learned them by heart and he told them. Wow. He was sitting next to the bed like this, this silhouette, just dark silhouette in, in, in this dark <laughs> big room. Uh, and I was scared to death by what he told me, of course, because he told me the, the scary stories. But sure. I enjoyed every minute of it as well. Right, so... Uh, your uncle told you the scary stories, and that kind of get you into the idea of writing horror. See, for me, people ask why horror, and one of the things I say is, well, it's sort of that rush you get, right? When you when you first read uh, something scary, or in your case, first heard something scary, you get that sort of adrenaline spike, you know, that like, then it's kind of like a drug you want it again and again, and it's like sometimes, for me, horror is like the one thing that like gives you that that rush. Oh, yeah. That I mean, that's scary rush. The stories that we remember the most are the stories that touch our feelings, right? And the stories that make us laugh, make us cry, or make us scared to death. And, and 
I remember as a kid, the stories that stuck with me the most were always the stories that made me look under the bed uh, because I feared there would be something underneath. And um, so that's what I started writing. Yeah. So, okay, so started writing very young, and then you, um, when did you, when did you, let's take it this way, when did you first get published? What was your first publication? So I was extremely young. I was 18 years old when my first book came out in Holland. It was a small press. But still, I got a book out, and that was pretty amazing. It was my debut novel. I, it, I mean, it didn't hit off straight away. I think it was, was my fifth book, which was Hacks. Uh, I was then with a big mainstream publisher in the Netherlands. But even then, it sold decently. It wasn't like a big book or something. Um, but then it was translated. Rights were sold in English. And Stephen King tweeted about the book in, here in America. Uh, and I went on a six-week book tour throughout the country. And then the Dutch media jumped on it, and I was invited to the late-night shows, and then, then it became an instant bestseller, and it's been selling ever since in Holland. Okay, yeah, and so the Hex was your fifth novel. Yeah, but I needed okay. that international breakthrough before I could hit it at home. Right, so now are you going... Are you going, are you going back to the novels that you've already published? Or, or what's like... Cause you have, so let's, look at, let's focus on Echo, which is your new novel that just came out. So was that something that was, had already been published in Dutch as well, I'm assuming? No. The, the books before Hex, I look at them like the way you look at, you know, pictures of your teenage years. <laughs> like, you look, oh yeah, that's what I looked like back then, you know? <laughs> Let's keep that in the closet. Keep, exactly. Right. Um, I mean, there's one really good one, I think. It's not a horror novel. It's more a work of magic realism. That that could still be, you know, dusted off and translated, I think. But, no, Echo's the one that actually wrote after Hex and subsequent novels, you know, they'll follow that. Right. And then, uh, before, because I want to talk about that, but before we get into that, I want to talk about um, short story writing, because you won a Hugo uh, for a short story that you wrote in, tw I want to say 2015? Is that? I'm going by memory. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your, your short fiction uh, historically speaking, and then we'll, and then I want to go kind of moving forward. But how, was it something? Um, be, uh, was it was it novels first? Was it short fiction first? What was your first love? What was your first? You know, I know Hex was your big success story, but how did you break in with short fiction as it compared to maybe the novels? So I read a lot of short fiction. I really love writers like Roald Dahl or Stephen King, friends who can do both very well: novels and um, short fiction, and. I think it was after three books that I dabbled into short fiction because I wanted to develop my own voice and short fiction forces you to think about every single word you put on a paper. It forces you to really get down to the basics of what good storytelling is. And um, so I wrote a couple. In the Netherlands, there is not really a market for short fiction, so I had them translated. Well... There are a couple of contests, and I was lucky enough to win them, and they would earn me some money, and I would invest the money in English translation. Uh, so that, oh, interesting. Yeah, so, so you pay for the translations yourself? I, I paid for those translations myself. Wow. And then I went to conventions in Britain or in the United States, and I sold the rights to them. And surprisingly enough, the first one, I think it was in 2013 or 12, I think, um, it was called The Boy Who Cast No Shadow. It was published by a UK publisher, and it got picked up by a couple of editors here in America who, you know, plugged the story. And it was nominated for a Hugo Award, and that got me a lot of traction. And then the second one, 
It was called The Increators of Doi Saket. And that was also nominated for Hugo Award. And both times I actually went to you know, the award ceremony thinking I'd have a chance. The first one was in Santa Fe and no, um, it was in, te in, in Texas. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. No, it's not Santa Fe. Yeah. No, it wasn't Santa Fe, New Mexico. It was San Antonio, San Antonio in Texas. Yeah, that's the one. Remember the Alamo. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I went to San Antonio in Texas to the award ceremony thinking I'd have a chance. Um, I was fifth in the category of five. Um, and then the next year I was in London. And so I went there. I again, was fifth in the category of five. And then I was like... Do they, do they rank them one through five? So like you yeah, know your last? People vote for the it award. It seems harsh. You know, it, it's it's a, it's an audience of where people vote for it. So so uh, I didn't really mind. I mean, that, that first year it was Pat Cadigan who won, and I went to her afterwards and I hugged her and said, "Congratulations!" And she was really surprised. None of the other nominated people have done that to me. It's like, well, it kind of makes yeah, sense. Yeah, they all right? just walked away to the bar. Yeah, exactly. They were drunk probably. So um, the third year, I was again nominated with another story. And I was in Spokane in Washington, and that's kind of far away from the Netherlands, so I was like, fuck it, I'm not going there. Um, so I was watching the live stream at 4 a.m. in my bed, and then I won. And it was actually Pat Gadigan who won that first year, who did my acceptance speech, so oh, that was funny. really nice. Full circle. Uh, yeah, I was uh, nominated for a Stoker this past year, and my wife and, I, my, my wife and I were in New York, and we were supposed to go, and I got COVID, so we were stuck in our... New York apartment watching it on the watching the live stream. <laughs> I was like, and I was like, I don't know if it's better that I'm not there, or if, you know, if I win or lose. I don't know if it's better to be there or to be here. A, like a lot of people get very nervous when you're at award ceremonies. Yeah, I lost. So I'm glad I wasn't atmosphere. there. <laughs> yeah, I was glad I wasn't there because I lost. So, um, okay, so I want to talk about uh, uh, writing Echo because one of the things that you and I have spoken a little bit about, and I think is really interesting, is that you were put in a situation where you had a book release, the book was a huge hit, and then of course they're all like, now we need another book, which you know you, you, you think you, you may or may not have had the deal for. And so now you have to do all the things that come with having this hit book out there, promotion, marketing, touring, movie deals, whatever, all that comes with that, and you're still trying to write a new novel. So. I want to ask you about about how you did that, how you found the time, and also about dealing with the pressure of that. Yeah, I think I surpassed my deadline with five years for <laughs> Echo. You know, the thing oh, we can do that. I didn't know we could do that. There was no other option, and I was making them a lot of money because Hex was selling like hell. So <laughs> right, <laughs> they didn't really mind. Um, you know, the thing is. Nobody prepares you for success, right? You gotta discover it, and when you experience it, it's fantastic, but it's also, um, you don't really know what to do with it, at least I didn't, so um, I toured the hell out of Hex. I went all over the world. I went four continents, I went to Brazil, North America, I went to China and Taiwan, I went all over Europe, and it was a fantastic experience, and I love that. I love going out, meeting readers wherever I can, and then, and, um, I really enjoyed that time. But at the same time, when so many people praise your book and King tweets about it and George Martin blogged about it and The Guardian gave you like a five-star review and all that stuff, that's fantastic. But at the same time, I'm, my mind is only going like, okay, how am I going to top that, right? Right. And so it gave a lot of pressure. And it was actually 
I was on tour for Hex in 2016 here in the States. And I was, um, this time I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, where George Martin has a um, museum and he has a mu movie theater and he invites writers to, um, you know, do readings and sign books. And so I did my uh, reading and I signed books and then I went to his museum where he had a party. And I asked him, how do you, how do you deal with the pressure of, you know, your success, we, you know, we all famously know that he hasn't finished the books for the Game of Thrones series yet, right? And then, um, so he said something to me that stuck with me. He said, the thing you got to do is just go back to the way you wrote when you were 10 years old. You know, just you in your room enjoying the hell out of a scary story. And if that's what got you started, you got to go back to that. And to hear something, someone like him say that, yeah. that hit something with me. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm, you know, touring, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking opportunities everywhere I go, but I'm still enjoying it. I, I kind of missed that at that point. I wasn't really enjoying the success as well. So I went back and I, with that in mind, I started finishing Echo because I had like half a book then. Um, and I enjoyed the hell out of it, and it was uh, the best fun I've had writing, I think, to that point. Yeah, and I, I, one of the things I also apply this similar thing to is I tell people a lot, writers, because, you know, it's hard to be a writer in the sense that you work in a vacuum, you get a lot of rejection. You get rejected by editors, you get rejected by publishers, you get mean-spirited reviews you know, and all that kind of stuff and um and it become it can become discouraging and it, but similarly what i always what i've done what i've told other writers to do is like i put the blinders on and i just focus on the story the next story whatever's the story i'm writing or the story i'm thinking about and i don't think about anything else but the story and it's a similar thing where you're just like focusing all your energy back to that root idea of creativity right and then when you were also you basically, you literally like escape the world when you are like I'm writing now, right? Like I'm gonna go away, no one can find me. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I mean I'm gonna be up on a mountain somewhere. Half of Echo was written in a you know snowed-in mountain cabin in the Swiss Alps. Um, yeah, it's good to have friends at different places and friends that have several houses so you can use their houses when they're away. Uh, I do that a lot. I sometimes write in Thailand, some, often in the south of France, um, some in Swiss Alps, which was kind of suitable for Echo. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I like to look myself. I, I kind of divide my time in nowadays, now I have that luxury to do that, in actual writing time, and I block literally half a year and, and make no appointments, no interviews, no nothing, just write. Um, and that tends to work for me. Yeah, it's almost like it's almost like a, the band model, right? Where you spend three months in the recording studio making the album, and then okay, now we've got to go out on tour, and we got to promote it, and all that stuff, and then like okay, now we got to seal ourselves off again. And I'm tr I try to do that, but we talked about this a little bit earlier. But you have so many commitments, and you have you know when you're a writer, especially a new writer, so much of it what happens to your book or, or to your career is solely dependent on you pushing the cart forward and if you don't push the cart forward nobody else is going to push it for you but you also have to write stuff so it's like dividing that time to your point I, josh malman 
and I were talking about it once, and he said, and I don't know if this is still true, but at the time, he said, I have one day a week where all I do is all my administration stuff, and that's like my admin day, and I don't, I deal with all my Zoom calls and all the editorial stuff and the, or whatever, or legal stuff or whatever all that stuff is, and then the rest of the week is just writing, which I, it's a luxury to have. And tying that into back to you, because I know I read a comment from you once where you kind of said, I'm, you're fortunate to have a good team of people who kind of deal with a lot of that noise for you. Can you, um, ex as if you're explaining it to like someone who's never had an agent or doesn't really know how, how that works, how did you first get your, your agent and, and the literary side, and, and, and let's, whether it be your Dutch agent or, or international agent or US, and then also I want to ask you about uh, if you've had experience dealing with people on the film side on the agency or representation front. So it is weird that the more success you have, the, the bigger, it becomes like an industry. You have a whole team of people around you that either represent you or work with you or that you, you know, pay to work for you. It, it, it gets strange at some point. You, you, there's this that tipping point where it feels weird to do that and then you kind of need it because otherwise it just doesn't work anymore. Um, I, the way I found my agent was... Since I've been going to conventions, uh, been meeting a lot of people in the bar usually because that's where the magic yeah. happens, right? Yeah. Um, and I, you know, being from the Netherlands and writing in Dutch, I always have to deal with translation, right? So there's that extra hurdle to surpass, basically. And I soon found that through panels where editors and agents were talking about, you know, international story sales. Um, they said, well, we'd love to read your work, but, you know, we just speak one language. So you got to translate it for us to, uh, to give it to us, to give us the opportunity. So that's what I did. I, I, like I said earlier, I invested in translation. Um, I, I took the effort to go to conventions and then I just spoke to agents and editors and the editors bought my short fiction. Uh, the nominations helped, I guess. Um, and then I met Anne Vandermeer, uh, who's an anthology editor. And she said, well, do you have an American agent already? Because I think uh, my agent and Jeff Vandermeer, her husband's agent, uh, would be a good fit for you. Um, her name is Sally Harding, lives in Vancouver, she's from New Zealand. Um, and she's a career agent that focuses on the long term. And I, she initiated a call with me and her. And I had like one afternoon to come up with a, um, an elevator pitch for Hacks, because it wasn't translated back then, it, was just, it was, just came out in Holland. Um, so because I went to all these conventions, I made friends with a lot of marketing people as well. So there was a marketing, people, marketing person at some British publisher that I you know, sent a message on Facebook, hey, can you help me with my elevator pitch? Um, so he did, we worked all afternoon on it and a really good elevator pitch. And on the basis of that elevator pitch, um, she wanted to represent me. And so you sold, you sold her the novel that she hadn't read because it wasn't even translated? No, exactly, English, she, right? she read the short story. She, so right, but she, she hadn't read the hacks, yeah, yeah. right, yeah. yeah. And, then her strategy was to get the book sold um, you know, in a couple of European countries, like in German or in French, because it's hard to get into the English language market if you're not an English language speaker. Um, but 
somehow it worked differently and then she managed to sell it to an American publisher right away and to a UK publisher and only then to the translation market. I was going to say, she sold it without it actually being translated. Yeah. All based on the yeah. elevator pitch. That's, yeah. pretty, that's pretty amazing. It but was. Here, my takeaway from everything you just said is that you basically worked your ass off <laughs> for like I did. years. Yeah. And like, it was fun. I mean. Yeah. Going uh, places and getting your stuff out yeah. there and getting your name out there and meeting people and paying people to translate your stuff. I kind of miss that part of it now because yeah, sure. I, I did it so intensively for so, such a long time. And, you know, with, with Echo, I wanted to go to all the conventions in the States as well, but then COVID hit, obviously, so um, uh, the past couple of years, and so there wasn't really an option. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I plan to do that more often again because I like that part. I like... That's the hustle, man. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, uh, let's talk about translation a little bit because it's interesting. The way you do it is very fascinating. I know you talk about this a lot, but I, I want to touch on it because uh, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say what I think happens, and then you tell me where I'm wrong. But at least with your novels, so you write the novels in Dutch. Uh, you have a, a translator who translates them into English, and then you do a complete rewrite of the English translation. Am I got that right? Basically, yeah, yeah. It, it's more than an edit. It's actually, well, it's, it's a very thorough edit because I want the English language translation to have my voice in it because um, translation is difficult. It's an art form. I really appreciate the work translators do because it, you know, it makes stories travel uh, across borders. And also from the English version of my books, it is then translated to other languages. So it's interesting. Um, I go oh, a bit further. So, it's, so the translations for other languages are based on the English? Yeah, usually they are. Because it's simply cheaper to find an English language translator to, oh. b because Dutch is you know, such a rare language. Uh, so, it, it, I mean, it was published in Ukraine a couple of years ago. I went on tour there before the war started, obviously. Um, and it was awesome. Great people, great, great experience. Uh, but it's so much easier to find an English Ukrainian translator than a Dutch Ukrainian translator. Right. Uh, and then can you touch on a little bit on what your experience has been on the, on the film adaptation side? Because I'm sure Hacks, I'm sure there was a, sh a frenzy uh, for Hacks. Give, you know, when Stephen King tweets about something and it's an international bestseller, I can only imagine, uh, you know, the kind of like uh, reaction that got from Hollywood. Can you talk a little bit about your, what your experience has been like so far in that world? That would be maybe, you know, interesting for someone who's never been there, who's never experienced that. Yeah, so based on that same elevator pitch, it was also sold to the publishers. I want to read that elevator pitch. It was a good man, elevator like pitch, a winner. <laughs> it, <was really laughs> yeah. it, it literally told the entire story of the book in three sentences with a punchline. Uh, it really worked. <laughs> um, so I'm surprised you don't have it memorized. Based on that pitch, it was sold to... Movie rights was sold to was it was optioned by Warner Bros. in 2014, two years before the book came out in the states, um, and they did nothing with it, and the rights came back to us two years later, right at the moment when it was published, and then Stephen King tweeted about the book, which was perfect timing because we just had the rights back, and right, my yeah. agent say, I mean, so my agent works with a film agent. Um, and he says, that, you know, there hasn't been a week that 
there hasn't been another inquiry to hacks ever since, still, still going on. So basically in 2016 we could pick between whatever, you know, people we like to have for the book. Yeah. Um, back then one of the people who op wanted to option it was Gary Dauberman. Uh, he's a screenwriter for uh, It, uh, Annabelle, okay. The Conjuring, those movies. Um, and we liked his work and we were like, yeah, this could be a good option. And um, so we went with him and for a couple of years nothing happened. And the week before rights reverted back to us, he called me in a panic saying, oh, damn, I see this option is going to expire. Um, and now, because of the pandemic, I had time on my hands to actually write a pilot episode, so he did. So we read it, and we liked it, so we gave him an option to, um, like a shopping agreement to sell the book around. Right. And now it's with um, TNT, which just greenlighted the show, and they're finding in international distributors now. Uh, and when that's done, they'll start filming. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. It is exciting. Um, okay, so... But it's, it's also... A completely alien world to me, Hollywood. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's the famous development hell that everyone talks about. I mean, it's right. been years and years and years in the making. You never know what's happening on that side. Yeah, I mean, it's like um, when you hear Paul Tremblay talk about the journey for um, Cabinet at the End of the World and uh, Head Full of Ghosts, you know, and Cabinet at the End of the World is now the M. Night Shyamalan movie, but... I think I've read like over the years like four deadline announcements with some <laughs> different producer or some different actress that was like signing on Head to make. Full of ghosts, right? Yeah, yeah full of ghosts. Yeah. yeah, but and I don't know. I, don't, I think it's still kind of bad being batted around. I want to ask you this is kind of I'm backtracking a little bit, but I thought it really was, was interesting talking about your translating, kind of getting back to that for a second, because um, you when you when you um, when you uh, translated hex. You did a major rewrite of uh, the last like four chapters. I'm going by memory uh, for the American audience, and you. I think you also changed the setting, right? Can you talk to us a little bit about that that part of the process? Because I thought it was really fascinating. Yeah. So Hex was a very Dutch book, if you will. It was. It, it's the original book sets in the Netherlands in a very small real town next to where I live, um, and I figured. I got a lot of reactions to the book when I was published in Holland. A lot of people were telling me, you know, they were really frightened by it and they had to sleep with the lights on and they really, you know, it, w it was a scary book. And I wanted to get that same reaction from wherever it was published. And I believe that in order to deliver that gut punch of horror, of good emotional horror, is when you create this perfect sense of familiarity and slowly get the reader involved in the story and only then you grab him by the throat and you squeeze, right? Yeah, you get him, you get him to buy, in, like, to invest in the characters. Yeah, in the story. yeah, yeah. And I figured if international readers would be wondering about, okay, how do you pronounce their names? Nobody even knows how to pronounce my name. So, um, let alone a lot of people in the book. How, what is the norm for these people? What are they afraid of? What are they not afraid of? I mean, the Netherlands the United States is quite alike, but there's also many cultural differences. Um, so I didn't want that rationale to get in the way of that emotional response to it. So I figured I might as well just change the setting. And since I'm Dutch, and since there's a lot of that Dutch heritage in the Hudson Valley, and it's a breeding ground for the Gothic novel, I picked the Hudson Valley as the setting for, for the book. Um, and it was quite intensive to rewrite it. I mean, I, I wrote 
the book in five months, I think, and I rewrote it in about a year. Yeah. Um, and you were basing the rewrite off of the translation or off of the original Dutch? Of the original Dutch. Okay. And there, there I mean, there, there are scenes. I mean, it's not only changing names and, and places. I mean, there, there was a scene in the original where the witch, because she randomly appears wherever she wants, basically, and um, in, into people's houses and people's bedrooms. She appears in a cavity wall. In the Netherlands, a lot of old houses are built with big cavity walls. So there's a wall, an inner wall, and then there's a space of like a couple of feet, and then there's an outside wall, and it's for insulation. Um, and the people of the house, I only found out about it because the dog starts barking and throwing himself against the wall. So my editor, who is from the area, the Hudson Valley, where it sets, she said, well, houses here aren't built that way. So we had to change the, wa the, the cavity wall to something else that would work. So I went with the broom closet and that was... I say put her in yeah, a closet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, and, but there's all these kind of little changes that, that come into play. And then there's some cultural background as well that needs to change. And the backstory needed to change. So there's it's quite a lot of work. Um, yeah. But the interesting thing is that um, it was sold to about 25 or 30 countries then. And we offered every single one of those publishers, uh, both the Dutch edition of the book and the, um, uh, the American edition of the book. And they all went for the American version. Even German publishers, even French publishers, they all wanted the American one. They wanted the, the one that you'd modified. Yeah. Interesting. Tell uh, us something about pop culture. <laughs> yeah, and then you, th th speaking of, you wrote, there's a, you said in an interview you did, and I wrote this down, that there's a word in Dutch, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to try and pronounce it. How do you pronounce that word? Where is it? This one. Gezellig. Yeah, that's why I didn't try to pronounce it. <laughs> so, sounds like a sneeze. Try so, it. Gezellig. <laughs> so, now, what you said is there's no real translation, English translation for that word, right? And so you run into that a lot when you're adapting your work. It's like, there's, you know, there's not really a word for that in English, so we got to, like, modify it. Yeah, I mean, and you find these instances all the time when you're dealing with translation, um, with words, with phrases, with expressions, but also with something like humor, for instance. I mean, Dutch people laugh at different things than American people, um, and it's sometimes hard to find the right tone for jokes to make them work in a, a different culture, and I'm sure for other countries it's different again, so... That's a challenge. In, in, in Hex, there's a character, his name is Robert Grimm, who has quite harsh kind of humor. Um, and both my UK and US publishers um, were saying, you know, why is he saying all these horrible things? Is, <laughs> is he possessed by the witch? Makes she say him all, all right. this, this bad stuff? I was, no, he's just having a bad day, you know? Right. <laughs> he's, just a, he's just an asshole. That's yeah. just all there is to it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I want to talk to you about one more thing before we take questions because we're running out of time. But I thought I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned, and I'm just going to quote you because it's easier. I like to take archetypes of the horror genre and twist them around in fresh and modern ways. And you specifically were talking about um, taking the possession trope with Echo. And, um, yeah, with Echo, yeah, sorry. And then, so... Can you just really quickly touch on that? Because I thought that was really interesting. So basically, you're taking 
you know, not necessarily taking vampires and modernizing them, but you, almost like um, uh, traditional themes in a way and sort of finding new ways to sort of like turn them upside down. Yeah, I mean, horror is based on a lot of archetypes, of course. I mean, in, in Hex, I had the witch trope and I tried to make a fresh story of that. Um, I mean, it is cool to take an archetype and try to do new stuff with it, right? In, in Echo... Echo's a possession story. It's my version of the exorcist, if you will. But what I don't like about possession stories is that there's always that religious counterpart of it. There's always right. the devil or a demon who's possessing, and then there's like a priest coming to exorcise. Um, whereas you can be possessed by so many things. You can be possessed by love. You can be possessed by whatever. And then um, I'm a mountaineer myself, and whenever I'm in the mountains, I have a sense that mountains have souls in them that, that have this, this force inside of them and many mountains feel very different than others. Uh, like some are very hostile, some are very welcoming. Uh, and I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have a story of a guy, a mountaineer, who's possessed by this force of nature because he has a horrible accident up in the mountains and he feels this mountain raging inside of him. So there's no, no, no religious part of it in the book whatsoever. It's, it's all about nature and I, I love that. Yeah, and um, and the uh, the idea in Echo, uh, Thomas's new book, the mountain basically possesses this guy, and and uh, and, and chaos changes him and everything around him. Yeah, chaos ensues. And I th and this is the last thing we'll touch on. Then I'll take a, any questions we have. But one of the things I really enjoyed about um, Echo was that your uh, your your two uh, your two guys uh, have such different voices. Like the one guy is very sarcastic and kind of hip gen x kind of almost voice and the other guy is very stoic and very serious and that kind of thing and um i thought it was interesting and i i, I want to ask how is it a challenge for you to um to create such dramatically different voices in your characters and when they're when they're when they are the ones telling the stories and not just characters with an omniscient narrator you have you're telling the story through these two povs right yeah. so how how difficult was that or, or was it just something that you came naturally or it was part why it took me so long to write the book, I guess, because um, they are very different. One is an American student uh, from New York who lives in Amsterdam. He's a linguistic student, so he speaks many languages in, in this case. And um, so he's the creative one with the language. The other one is more journalistic. He's a journalistic writer. Uh, so he's very straightforward fiction, what, um, what he writes, is straightforward prose. Yeah. Um, and... But, you know, when these characters start to live in your head, then the voices come automatically. They start to speak to you, right? And then you must have experienced that, that it's just so good when it happens because you can just write down the way it flows out of your mind. Um, yeah. the, the, the biggest challenge was, I guess, in the translation. We had a very good translator, I think, who did, especially the American guy, very good justice. Uh, but we were considering to actually pick two different translators for each voice. We didn't in the end. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but we yeah. thought it would be a nice experiment because they are so different. Um, we didn't do it in the end, but it was an option. Yeah, and you actually have sections of the book where it's a jur they're, they're journal entries, you know, for, uh, versus so that would have been that would been an interesting play. Um, all right, well, thank you so much, Thomas, for for talking and uh, talking us through your experiences and about writing and editing and all that stuff. Uh, before we um, sign uh, books, which are behind us. Uh, does anyone have any questions for Thomas they would like to ask from the audience? Anything to throw out? 
let me let me repeat the question so that we get it on the audio. Uh, the question is, uh, have you tried screenwriting? I have. There's a new novel coming out next year in the States. It's called Oracle. Um, it has already been published in the Netherlands. It's interesting because it's one important character from Hex is coming back in that. So for people who enjoy the Hex, they will like this. There's, there are lots of Easter eggs uh, for Hex in the book. Um, but I wrote a pilot script for that myself. This is an experiment for, like an, uh, for what it would be if it was a TV show. Uh, and now there's actually a Dutch film company that is very interested in it. And it was fun. It was, I don't think I'll always do that with my own work. I trust there are people who do that way better than I do. But I like the experiment. And I've been getting a lot of questions from film companies who like to, you know, get me to write scripts for them. I wouldn't do that if it's not based on my book, I think, because it's just not my art form. I like the prose. I like the fiction that I write. Yeah. Uh, did you have a question, sir? Did I hear you raise your hand? When, when, you, when you're writing about unique characters, do you have to put yourself in their headspace? Is that right? Oh, and what inspires you to come up with those unique personalities, yeah. So it, it, it's very different with, with, um, with each book, I guess. With Echo... It was definitely um, what I wanted. There's a contrast in the book between the guy who's possessed by the mountain, who loves the mountains, and then um, the other character who hates the mountains and who still, you know, um, who, how do I explain that? Well, their entire background is very different, right? So I wanted to come up with a voice that would um, would translate that literally. That that these are very different people, still together, still loving each other very much, still um, um, able to 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 have an existence together, but but they sound very differently, and that that's thematically important for the book, I guess, because they. It is about the one character actually falling in love with that possessed side of the other one, basically. And so what I do when I write that, I guess, it's basically the same what you do when, with any story when characters are very different than you are. Um, you get in their mindsets and you think, what would I be like if I was that person and what... How would I speak? How would I talk? And you translate that to the paper. Does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> and, and if I can take it a step further, what's also fascinating about it, because you talk about this a lot, is um, not only do you have to understand how they would talk or how they would react or how, you know, what action they would take, but also uh, how they deteriorate under certain pressures, right? Because you, you've said what's scary about a book is not necessarily what's the external force, but the, but the internal re response to that external force, you know, and how you don't know what a person's going to do and how that fear can drive them to do things that they might not, you know, might be outside their normal uh, range of activity or responses. Yeah. So with each different person you create, they all kind of have a different way to responding to these horrors and scares that you throw at them. And that comes back to the archetypes that you discussed earlier that, that you know, the natural reaction to someone who's possessed is you run away from it, you're scared of it. I like dabbling with the effect of what if you're not 
you, well, you are scared of it, but at the same time, it attracts you. And that's what happens in the book, of course. That they're very different people, but because he's changing, you know. He was almost boring before. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. And then, <laughs> and and then you're this mountain god suddenly, you know. Yeah, and I was a mountain god, yeah. Uh, all right, cool. So, oh, yeah, Kevin, you have a question? So as it pertains to hacks, um, the history, did you get into the history of the witches and the hysteria that's been well recorded when you were doing your research? So a lot of people who read hacks tell me they're really frightened by the witch, right? And then when you get further into the book, you're not as frightened for the witch anymore, you're frightened for the people. Um, because it's a book about scary people, not so much about a witch. Um, Obviously, the, the witch theme was symbolic for, and the hysteria, the, witch, the witchcraft um, part of the book is, is symbolic for whatever goes on in society nowadays, or back then when I wrote it, it's, it's nine years ago now. Um, the fear of the other, the fear of forces that we don't understand, human or otherwise, in the, in the case of the book, otherwise, but in the real world, human often. Um, I thought that would be really interesting to write a story about people who, a modern day town who has this, haunt, who has this haunting of this supernatural presence that's been around for 300 years. Um, and um, they act like they're not afraid of it, but they are. And in the Netherlands, there was a whole hysteria about, uh, it was during the war in Syria and where a lot of um, immigrants coming in. And there's always, in whatever country you are, there's always that, you know, that battle between people who are supportive and about people, we don't want them, we want to put fences around the country, you know? You, you have that in the States. I've heard something about that here in the US. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't want to get too political. <laughs> um, so I was fascinated by how upset people can get over stuff that is the other of, of that's different from themselves and that played into the story of hex there's this hysteria about this supernatural force that they don't understand still try to deal with it but they try to block it away in all sorts of ways um i think that was a big inspiration for it almost pretending it doesn't exist right in a way it's just it's not there yeah literally shutting its eyes and shutting its <laughs> mouth yeah <laughs> Uh, all right, cool. Hey, thank you, uh, you guys, for the questions. We are going to uh, end the podcast portion of uh, the evening. And uh, Thomas will be signing copies of Echo and Hex uh, right now. And I have some books up here as well. If anyone wants to buy one of those, I'll sign them for you. And I uh, appreciate you guys coming out. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, guys, it's Philip again. I wanted to let you know that you can buy any of the books discussed on The Dark Word at The Book House, which is Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to thebookhousemilburn.com, that's M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit the actual store in Milburn, New Jersey, where you can buy books from all the authors we feature here on The Dark Word or at the Book and Film Globe podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, 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 oh.